There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream or two. Well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time uh, podcast. And in this episode, I'll be continuing my read through of, of Stephen King's novel, It. Specifically, I'll be looking at chapters five and six and I guess seven. Yeah, that's about right. Um, and this is, is we're continuing our our kind of flashback chapters all set in June of 1958. Well, I guess they're technically set in the, in 85 in the present as our characters are making their way to Derry on their return. And while they're on their way, they, they start to have their, they start to recollect the past and they recollect certain scenes and, and King kind of fuses them together to tell the story of, of how the, this losers club gets together in June of 58. And he, and he does it by telling the stories of these individual um, uh, characters as they recollect the, their past. And so these chapters are all intertwined in in the timeline of, of 1958, even if they are sort of uh, disconnected in the, in the, the present timeline of, of 1985. So our... First chapter that we're going to look at today, chapter five, Bill Denbro beats the devil one. Uh, this there's going to be a chapter later on that sort of provides some payoff for this this chapter right at the end. It's actually I think the very last chapter of the book, like the epilogue of the book. Bill Denbro beats the devil two, and they are uh, intimately connected uh, chapters, and it does create a wonderful ending to the book. I think. Um, but anyways, uh, so we start with uh, Bill Denbro taking the Concorde across the Atlantic. So he's taking the fastest plane he can take to get uh, to Derry uh, from, from London. We actually had just met him back in Chapter 3, the six phone calls chapter. Um, so um, you get the sense that, that King is kind of interested in the Concorde just as a, a means of travel, kind of reaching the speed of sound or whatever, and he kind of plays with that a little bit. But mostly we, we witness him thinking back uh, about silver. Now, silver, of course, is the bicycle that he uh, is going to be his companion, right? If, if Bill Denbro is the leader of, of, the, of the Losers Club, uh, he's the knight, uh, then he needs his steed, and his steed is silver, right? Just like any uh, 1950s young boy would have a, have a, have a bicycle. Um, so he remembers purchasing silver and how he has to save money for, for that. Um, and basically the, the plot of this chapter is quite simple. Bill uses silver to, to save Eddie from his supposed asthma attack. Of course, Eddie, uh, is, a, you know, it's his, his, uh, poor health is all psychosomatic. It is imposed on him by his mother who has, um, I think it's Munchausers by proxy, I think that's what most uh, readers conclude. Um, and actually, we get confirmation in this chapter right away that Eddie's asthma is psychosomatic, which I think is not, it's a little bit clear in the Eddie section of the six phone calls chapter, where we see um, him thinking about 
his mother, how his mother kind of pushed these illnesses on him. But we also see that he's embraced him. I think that's interesting because a lot of our characters uh, reject a lot of their past uh, when they reach adulthood, but never quite all of it, right? Like um, Ben keeps the silver dollars even though he loses his weight. Uh, Bill keeps his, I guess, his imagination, his ability to write. That was there throughout his life. Eddie keeps his illness. Beverly keeps her dysfunctional relationships with men, which she gets. So they all carry something with them, even as they forget um, Derry. But I think it's clear in Eddie that he doesn't seem to ever grow out of this. And, and that becomes significant because like his inhaler becomes a weapon. Is it against the eye, um, the manifestation of the eye in in his battle with with um, with it or his contrib- contribution to the battle with it in the sewers in 1958 but we'll get to that um, but and we also are introduced to to that pharmacist Mr. Keene who's kind of a, a sadist it's another little window into just how fucked up things are in Derry and how and how those adults are by and large disgusting people I'll, I'll come back to that issue in a little bit so he's, uh, he uses silver to do this. So he's with silver, he's able to bravely uh, navigate the streets of, of Derry. He's able to beat the devil, right? Um, do something amazing with, with armed with silver. So silver is sort of his, uh, his, his weapon. And they all have a weapon of sorts that they're able to use against him, whether it's, it's like sneezing powder or... Um, well, in, in one character's case, it's her, it's her burgeoning sexuality. And, uh, you know, for Ben, it's the silver dollars. Eddie, it's, you know, Eddie's inhaler. Uh, you know, I didn't write all this down. So, you know, it's all there. It's all there. Um, but he, he comes back. So that's the first part of the chapter. And then we see Ben, after Eddie recovers, we see Ben. Ben giving his two new friends and they become friends instantly. It's almost, it's Ka really, if you want to kind of throw a dark tower uh, term into this, which I'll probably end up doing a few times. It's, it's in one sense, not fair to do. I think he wrote this around the time he wrote was writing drawing of the three. So I think the term Ka actually appears in there, um, but we have a Katet forming, right? Um, so their instant friendship, which itself seems supernatural. It's probably guided in part by the turtle. But anyways, he gives his two new friends advice on how to build a better dam. And and that night, or is it a flashback? I'm not sure. I think it's that night um, after that meeting that he has an experience with it. Um, now, we're also told, though, that's not the first something like this happened. So Bill has experienced it before. But uh, so like with Ben, it's a flashback to several months earlier. Um for Bill, I think it's that night, but he remembers having this experience before. So he's kind of shunning Georgie's room. Um, it's still kept intact. The parents still grieving for for Georgie after um, um, after you know months, but it's not long enough for them to come to you know to pack up the room. They they keep the the room intact, and Bill avoids it because this is where it sort of manifests. Now with a lot of the other characters, they're experiencing it near one of its uh near a connection to its lair right like uh the house on Nebold street with the case with eddie 
the canal with the case of, of Ben, uh, Beverly with the drain. Um, but somehow the murder of George somehow gives it access to George's room. I don't know if this is well thought out by, by King. It might be, or King just wanted to have this experience. But anyways, it's not the first time it's happened to him. So Bill stays away from the room and he's not telling anyone about it. Um, now, it's not as threatening as Ben. So with most of these characters, we have life or death like moments against it. And we're reminded of that in the next chapter, as we'll get to. Um, so it's uh, it's just like I was complaining a lot in the last episode how like the film version spent a lot of time with just having it sort of scare them. And that's sort of how it feels here that it's it's just there to sort of terrorize him or, or horrify him a little bit. Um, but it is using George to terrorize Bill. That's that's clear. So this is a, a, like the exception that proves the rule, I think, where um, the, I guess in this sense, I, I can forgive um, the film versions for to a little bit for, for making it less horrifying and threatening in each encounter with it, because in this scene, it's, it's not a direct threat to him. Um, but it's more a pattern. It does fit into a pattern where it is using children's fears against them, like uh, like the mummy, right? That was the movie Ben saw, and the werewolf later on, or the leper with Eddie's case using his fear of 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 disease against him. Um, in Bill's case, it's the sorrow and guilt he's feeling over his brother's death. So um, even though this chapter is fairly straightforward, I think um, there's a bit to unpack here. Um, we see the characters, for instance, uh, musing on the murders. They're uh, aware of it. Um, for Bill, it's a little more personal. We see Ben sort of compartmentalizing the murders in a way that Bill can't, but how there's an awareness about the murders going on. And all the young people are, are sort of aware of, aware of them, so that's something to perhaps think about here. Um, I also would say, uh, like, Silver, how important, like, what is Silver's role? It's like... There, there is a scene in a later chapter, as we'll see in the next episode, where Silver is put into battle. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Um, that wasn't really done in any of the film versions, I think. But if you just watch those, you, you have to wonder what's the point of Silver right, in the film, except to get them around. All the kids seem to have bikes, in the, in, at least in the, the new version of it. Um, which I, I'm not sure that's true in the book. I'd have to think about it. Uh, obviously, Silver's this huge bike, right? It's like a big, massive. It, it is supposed to be, look, be like a horse, right? A knight's horse. You know, one of those big, uh, what's the word for those big combat horses? It's it's like one of those. It's way too big for him. Um, it helps him act bravely, but it, it all leads to that final chapter where Silver's real importance here is to to f defeat the final legacy of it, which is Audra's, his wife's um, catatonia that, that she, you know, she sees the deadlights, she's driven insane by it and Silver pulls her out of that and f puts an end to it. I mean, that's the final victory over it. So beating the devil, it's, it's kind of literal. Um, and he does it with the help of Silver um, in his last moment as a child. It's so wonderful. It's, it's like a great ending. Um, but because of this, and it's all set up here, but if you're seeing this more as a straight up 
just horror book and you want and you want silver to be used in battle that you're, you're going to be disappointed right especially like in the in the 85 timeline where he buys silver again and it's not used in any significant way in the struggle against it except in that final scene um so, so definitely silver is something that is symbolically very important and it's it's important to how bill behaves we do see him becoming like instantly brave when he's on silver and of course it's just a great image of these 50s kids on bikes um especially especially bill i guess the other kind of question symbolically and it's harder for me to determine is the significance of the dam um, and i think what it is what it comes down to and i think is the importance of katet uh, again, to use the Dark Tower phrasing for this, if, you know, Eddie and Bill are not able to make a dam on their own, Ben coming and providing his leadership and his knowledge, and actually his intuition really is what it is, he's able to, um, they're able to achieve something that's amazing, really. They, 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 they pretty much are capable of flooding the barrens, right? They get scolded by the police for doing that. So they're able to do more than they can as individuals. And so that's really the significance of the dam, I think. It's setting up the, the power of the group to, to achieve great things. Um, we also have uh, the whole question of how Bill's family is dealing with George's death. It's not very well. It's breaking the family apart and Bill's being increasingly left behind. Um, now, it seems to want to disrupt Bill's closure over the death of George. If he's able to, like, this is the moment in which Bill should be able to maybe begin to achieve some closure uh, over the death of George. He's had a whole school year to dwell on that. He can now have a summer of freedom um, and it is constantly interrupting that and disturbing that. Um, but meeting Ben perhaps gives Bill's the, Bill the courage to, to try again to overcome that. And overcoming George's death is also part of, of their victory over it. So this whole chapter, in many ways, is the beginning of this duel between Bill and It over George, which uh, is very, very central to the climax of the book. Um, so I guess I, my big question that I'm left with in this chapter, I, although I think I understand it for the most part, my big, uh, you know, the, the scaring of Bill, it's certainly going to scare a child, but, you know, it's not that. I mean, it's supernatural, so anything supernatural is going to be terrifying, I suppose. But knowing we're reading a horror book and waiting for the great, uh, the horror moment, you know, of, of an album bleeding and, and things like that is not that scary to us. Of course, it would be from him. We have to empathize with Bill here. But what's is its goal here? Um, just to scare him, maybe to suppress him. It doesn't seem to be working in trying to break up the quartet yet. Um, maybe they get to that. Maybe that has a part. Maybe that's something we want to kind of reserve and think about when we get to chapter eight. All right. So with that, we can move on to chapter six, I think. And so we come to one of my favorite chapters in the book. There's a few. This is um, my favorite of the chapters in this part of the book. This um, is it part two. Yeah, part two, the June of 58. This is my favorite chapter from the June of 58. We start. We started this uh, part with two personal chapters, um, Ben and Bill's. And now we return to a broader view of Derry. This is, I guess, technically it's Mike's chapter, 
but narratively he you know mike's not returning to Derry, so it doesn't fit into the structure of the of the book the other the other five chapters here are all people returning to Derry, and we see their adventures on their way and their remembrance mike never forgot and and therefore that chapter wouldn't work for him so king i think very smartly adds this chapter um which allows us to return to a broader view of Derry, which is some of his best work, like the interlude chapters. And so we get a, a very different style of narration here. Um, so this chapter has two interconnected sections. So the first part of it is the story of the deaths of Eddie and Dorsey Cochran. Um, so, um, and it's told in, an, in a fragmentary form. It's told through uh, newspaper accounts. In fact, we get newspaper accounts that go all the way to past um, well past 58 into the 60s. Um, so we get the whole story of it, the, the, the media accounts of the investigation into the murders of, of Eddie and Dorsey Cochran. So Dorsey was killed by his abusive father. And this is, I guess, uh, and then we see through these accounts how their father um, tries to come to terms with that. It, there, he was clearly being driven by it in some ways to do this he's not present he's presented as i guess and yeah certainly he's presented as an abusive father but he's not murderous and you know but Derry somehow like if he was in another town he may have just he may have been still been a horrible abusive father but maybe not i don't know but certainly being in Derry makes him more abusive right and so quite a brutal murder when it's when it's finally described um, so he is killed. His father's, uh, eventually like arrested and we get that whole story of his trial and his attempt for redemption and eventually his suicide, um, in the, um, in these newspaper accounts. Um, and then we get a nice scene where we see what happens to Eddie because Eddie vanishes. And we're, we're told that through these newspaper accounts that sometime after the death of Dorsey, the younger brother, the older brother, Eddie flees, uh, and and seems to vanish and he's just another one of the missing so he's the one of the missing that the title of the chapter is about and he's going around like he's at the kissing bridge or the canal he's somewhere over there um again the geography of Derry is really well played out here and really well written in this book uh and plays a major role in the story but he is killed by it in the form of the creature from the black lagoon um, and I think he actually, like it sometimes takes the form of, of Dorsey, uh, and then finally takes the form of the creature of the black lagoon again, using, uh, the pop culture from the fifties. So you kind of got to read dance macabre, at least parts of dance macabre alongside of this, because these films from the fifties that were attractive to, uh, to these young people, um, and certainly part of King's memory of the fifties. And those were the things that scared him when he was a kid, right? And again, we watch these movies now. We don't find them that scary, but we got to put ourselves in the minds of kids in that time period, you know, at a time when movies still shocked and terrified and, and still had that role over us. Again, read Dance Macabre if you want to know more of King's feelings about this uh, aspect of the story. And again, I, I think the important lesson here is that something is very, very, very wrong here with um, dairy, um, causing adults to act cruelly to children. Not every adult is bad, 
but I get the sense that every adult is potentially bad, like the way Bill's parents ignore him. Um, of course, Eddie's Eddie Kasprak's mom, um, you know, but Ben's mom seems not bad, I guess. I, I don't get the sense of her being a cruel person, but uh, most adults are. It's not all, though. But there, there is something driving adults to act particularly cruelly, to ch especially towards children, right? Not necessarily to each other. Um, or you don't get mu that much evidence of adults being cruel to each other, uh, except maybe Henry Bauer's father towards the, the Hanlons. But anyways, the major evidence for this year is Richard Macklin's, who's, I guess it's Eddie's stepfather, right? Eddie and Dorsey's stepfather. It's uh, his apparent redemption after leaving Derry for prison. So he leaves Derry and he's instantly aware of um, what he did to the children, but he's unable to understand why he harmed his children and why he beat them and why he eventually killed Dorsey. And he has a true religious redemption. And we actually have testimony from the priest. You could say that's all self-interest it or whatever, but I don't think so. I think King is trying to say that Richard Macklin was redeemed and truly not aware of why he did the things he did. Um, then we have the second part of the chapter, which is Mike Hanlon's encounter with it. So we get a nice look at the relationship between Mike and his father. And Mike's father is going to be an important part of the story coming, looking forward looking ahead, both in the relationship with the Bowerses and, um, and his own history, because he experienced it um, in the earlier cycle. That's the same cycle with the Kitchener Ironworks. So Hanlon is, uh, Mr. Mr. Hanlon's father, Mike Hanlon's father, is a farmer, a fairly prosperous farmer. Um, you need to keep in mind that he's able to save up money for Mike's college. He's able to give Mike a share in the farm in exchange for his work. Uh, and he's another one. He's a good one. He's a, he's, he's a relatively uh, good character, although they might be somewhat out of town <laughs> uh, in the farms. I don't know. Um, but again, not all adults are bad, right? Here. Um, but he, sometimes he doesn't have to do chores around the farm, and he'd get notes from his father saying, why don't you look into this? And uh, Hanlon's, Mike Hanlon's father, who you know spent much of his life in dairy investigated his history and then encouraged his son to do, do the same so that's one reason mike himself becomes the historian of the story and one of these days he basically says go investigate the kitchener ironworks which is an important event of a in a previous cycle of it it's the site of a major explosion during an earlier cycle i think it's it ends the cycle right um maybe is that the same year as the the fire uh at the at the bar, the army bar, uh, I think it is. Um, and this is like the, the exclusion is the end of the cycle. This is some catastrophe ending the cycles. And of course, at the end of the book, we get uh, a eucatastrophe in a sense that destroyed, uh, as I said before, should have destroyed the town, but didn't. And King didn't quite go that far. But it's, um, it's, an ex it's a disaster that leads to the cleansing of the city, right, with water. But here it's fire, right? So take that that what you will. Um, and and here Mike does barely get by. Um, he's basically attacked by a giant bird. Um, 
which I always wish they would really have tried to film because I think this is great. He, it appears kind of as a mixture of a, of a giant monster bird and Rodan. And if you don't think that's scary, I mean, even just play goddamn Elden Ring. There's like really scary looking giant birds in that, in, um, in that video game. So giant birds can be pretty terrifying, I would think. Um, now, of course, it's a mixture of, of like birds and like a, like a regular bird and Rodan. I think it's closer to Rodan a little bit because, again, we got a movie reference being used to kind of it taking advantage of children's, you know, terror at these movies. But King connects these two stories together by having Mike find evidence of Eddie Cochran's death because everyone thinks Eddie Cochran just sort of fled his father and vanished. Um, and then maybe something horrible happened to him. Um, but he was killed by it, obviously. They weren't all found. That's how the chapter begins. And we find evidence of his death. And he then through finding this, he recollects his own experiences with it. Now, what does he find? He finds a... It's a knife, right? And that's not the only knife to appear in the story as an important um, artifact. And of course, you have uh, Henry Bowers' knife, which uh, plays an important role here. Um, but here it's... Uh, it's Eddie Cochran's little little knife. So, so much great stuff going on in this chapter. Uh, like I said, it's one of my favorites in that it does, even though it's not doing the flashback from a character returning to Derry, it still has a lot of the same time jumping. In fact, more, I think, than a lot of these chapters in the way it, it builds up our feeling about the town and its experiences. And we realize that this is afflicting the whole town. It's not just these seven characters who are experiencing it. And, and again, that's... Um, Something that could have been done better in the film versions. I'm sorry, I keep complaining about the movies, but they're they're so easy to pick on. So then we have, uh, well, what to think about this chapter? Well, as I said, clearly not all adults in Derry are evil. Um, I've heard that criticism made of the book. I don't think it's fully true. Although many and a large number seem possessed in some sort. We got, uh, like, we got characters who seem to be generally good here. Dorsey's teacher, I think, um, Dorsey and Eddie's mother. We have the librarian, Ben's like Ben, the, the you know the librarian that helps Ben out. Um, Mike's father seems to be generally good, um, so it preys on people who I think have some inherent tendency to do bad. I, I think that's the way to read it. Um, and it, this is our first. This chapter is our first intimate view of Mike Hanlon. We've met him through the phone calls only vaguely, and we met him in the in the interlude chapter but um you know he's obviously curious he's incredibly brave he's a survivor like the others um and he as later on in the book he's going to be his family's going to be the, presented as the direct opposite of the bowers family which is a poor family violent vicious you have a cycle of brutality and violence in that family uh rooted in poverty right um and and here we have a, a more successful, hardworking family. It's, I guess it's a, I will say that's a bit of a sin of, of King in having very, not being gray enough at times when maybe you need that. Like, you know, it's easy because you can just blame things on it here. Why gray people go bad. Well, I guess that's, that's how I can interpret that. The gray people go, tend to go bad and the good people tend to, have the capacity to stay good in this environment but 
you know, it's something he never really breaks free of. I think even though later on he has more gray villains in some of his later works, I just reread Under the Dome because uh, I'm kind of doing a current reread through of, of King. And he, um, in Under the Dome, man, like, it's annoying how black and white the characters are. And again, he, he creates an environment in where people are going to be driven to either hero- heroism or, or evil. But it's just like from the get-go our our villains are presented as bad i mean there's not much gray in those characters and that's a later book um so i i prefer the grayer king sometimes but you know as much as i like it i guess that's a little bit of a criticism but it but it works because if you do kind of lay out that it is pushing the gray people to their worst impulses um, the question, another question here I might have is, um, you know, I guess Mike's curiosity and bravery and what drives him to go to the Kitchener Ironworks ruins. If you want to say it's like the turtle is behind some of these things, I don't see it. It's really his father just tells him to do it and he does it. Um, and we get a long description here of his survival of his encounter with it. Maybe the best description of a survivor's encounter with it, where the bird is trying to kill him like relentlessly and he barely gets away. Um, now, he sort of fights back. That's the difference with Eddie. So you're kind of drawn, you're kind of expected here to contrast Eddie, and I mean Eddie Cochran's, Cochran. Already Cochran's, yeah. Failure uh, with Mike's. Now, Eddie is taken aback by the fact that this creature appears to him in the form of, of Dorsey, but he just flees and is basically just killed uh, as he tries to flee. Mike fights back, and he fights back with, essentially with magic, right? Which is the key. So he's the first we see here of, of someone using magic, child's magic, right? The belief that, heroism and like weapons and things can destroy it right um it's it's discussed so literally in that last movie sorry another criticism you know that it's like mike finds in a talks to some indians and they say you gotta the ritual of chud chud is reduced to oh you gotta it has to take the 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 form it has to take the characteristics of the form it's in and it's told like very very literally here um we only get that stated explicitly by it uh, at the end of the novel, and it's done still in a in a rather subtle, interesting way there. Um, but it's just when you're children facing something horrific, you're that is of the realm of imagination. What can you do to fight back except base it on imagination, right? So his ability to fight back, you know, throw things at it and and face it directly allows him to survive. So it's another hint, I guess a clue, that that is the key to survival, is direct confrontation. And the use of magic. Um, It's the third encounter at the canal, so, or near the canal. Well, I guess we've had a um, melon is at the canal. I guess George is at the sewer. Uh, Ben sees it at the canal. And now we have Eddie Cochran killed near the canal. And it's also the first evidence that it can be harmed, I guess. So this is a really, really important and good chapter. And it does a lot of 
it carries a lot of weight narratively, more so than, uh, well, all these chapters are really rich, but, um, and you really can't skip any of them. They all are important pieces of the puzzle. All right, so um, next we have chapter seven, The Dam in the Barrens. Um, and this is, chapter is basically Eddie's first encounter with it. And it's also about building the Katet, I suppose. So um, basically we almost have everyone here. Like Beverly is sort of connected to Richie um, already, kind of their acquaintances. And, and of course, Mike's the last piece. He's not really added till till July of fifty eight, but we we we're well on the way to our full quartet uh, in this chapter. A lot of this is it basically picks up where the Bill Denbro beats the devil chapter ends. Um, so it kind of six is out of order in a way, but this picks up where that chapter five ends, and it begins with the the construction of the dam on the Kandusky uh, stream, which runs through the Barrens. So Richie and Stan show up. They're already friends with, with Bill and Eddie. And they arrive to help. And we see that as a group, these five people are able to build this dam that, with Ben's knowledge. So it's not just about, but I don't think it's not just about Ben being, having this knowledge of construction. That r doesn't really play much of a role in their fight against this. It. It's not like at one point Ben like builds a quick, uh, you know, scaffolding or something to, to, to save the day. He builds this dam, which shows the power of the group. And later on, he, he helps with the clubhouse, which um, gives them their fortress, their castle, which any knights in a, in a, in a battle need to have. Um, but yeah, I, I can't think of any way like that knowledge plays a major role in defeating it. Um, but anyways, they do it. And it shows their power. I think that's what it comes down to. And if there's more to it, let me know. And then the other part of where we see the children's power together is in the storytelling. So Bill tells his story of, of it. Eddie recollects his. And I don't know if he shares it with the other losers at this point, but Ben does. Um, and then Stan denies it. And we'll learn about Stan's encounter, I think, in Chapter 9. So we start to see them pull their stories together, right? Um, so it actually is pretty quick after the losers meet that they begin to talk about it. I was, I was, for some reason, I was thinking before it was like delayed a little bit, a couple of chapters, but but no, I think with the exception of Stan and, and maybe Eddie, who's just recollecting it, they do begin to put together. Oh, Richie's encounter with it is, of course, uh, he had an encounter, but he, he thought it was a dream. Or he forgot it or something. So, um, yeah, in any case, this is another way them harnessing their, their, their power as a group. And part of it's storytelling, but part of it's also their capacity. We see it in their capacity to build the dam. But anyways, to Eddie's experiences. This is the famous uh, leper scene, um, which is... <coughs> excuse me, set at the house on Ebel Street. So it's our first introduction to the haunted house of Derry, um, which is, you know, King has a fascination with haunted houses. He's used it again and again in The Shining, in Salem's Lot, in, um, where else? Here, of course. I guess those are the, the best examples of the evil 
house or the evil place. I think there's some other examples that are just slipping my mind in his earlier works, but those are those are the two good examples: the Marston House and Salem's Lot, and the and the Overlook and the Shining, uh, and the House on Nebold Street is that. So my I got some questions about the House on Nebold Street, which maybe um, we can talk about in the next chapter because it is a haunted house, essentially. Um, and is it is it haunted because of of it or is it haunted just because every town has a haunted house i guess is is obviously it's built after it had already dwelled in dairy so there's some relationship to it but is it an extension of it again that's what that the movie was trying to to make out um but or is it just because it's an evil house it has a fondness for it um and, and dwells there. So, of course, again, we see it taking advantage of, of these children's fears. Um, you know, that's like that's that's the spice on the meat and the on the on the the meat. Right. And that's why he likes children or that's why it likes children. She, if I actually should say when it's finally gendered, it's a she. So if I screw up the pronouns, I'm sorry. I don't have the nah, my my pronoun skills are, are still still advancing bit by bit but anyways uh it's uh it likes to eat children because it can scare children and it likes fear uh adults can't be scared in quite the same way they their fears are more cerebral and it in the later we only get a couple pages from its point of view but so much is unpacked in those so much is revealed so um So anyways, uh, we have the encounter with the leper, which is just basically there's some kind of uh, R-rated stuff going on here where where Eddie was earlier, I think, encounters a hobo. I'm trying to piece this together. Um, yeah, he appears he, he there's so much time flipping. You kind of got to take care even more careful notes than I've been taking. But he I think he encounters a hobo that basically just says, like, I'll give you some money if if you let me blow you. And so he got kind of a, again, that's probably a, you know, someone who's pushed towards evil by being in dairy. Um, but he's a kind of a drifter and Eddie likes to hang out at the, like by the trains and watch the trains go by, but he runs into these hobos and, and stuff, but he sees this, this disgusting hobo offers to blow him for, for some money. And then, Eddie kind of gets away from him, but this fear of disease from that encounter deeps into a psych psychosis, and then it manifests. When it appears, it manifests the leper, right? Well, anyways, the chapter ends with the... Um, actually, I think Stan starts to tell the story, um, but he's interrupted. Um, he says... Uh, so, so Stan's hearing the others tell their stories, and then Stan starts to um, um, flip out and Richie kind of is harassing him saying, oh, tell your story about the, about the bad clown or whatever. And, you know, Stan, who didn't see a clown, he saw dead kids, uh, tells him to shut up, just shut up, like really aggress uh, really kind of aggressive response to that uh, friendly teasing. And then Eddie's like, that's okay, don't tell. And then Stanley says, it wasn't a clown. His eyes flicked from one of them to the next in the room. He seemed to struggle with himself. 
And then Bill tries to say, you can tell. Stan says, it wasn't a clown. It was. And then they're interrupted by the, by the police who, who figured out about the, the damming of the river. And, and that inter- that, so that delays it. So that's the delay in, t- in piecing all their stories together. We don't get Stan's story. We don't get Rich's, Rich, Richie's story. But the rest uh, do share their stories in this chapter. Um, so anyways, that's uh, the plot of it. Uh, I think this, is a, this chapter is a conversation on power. It's how the losers define power and how they're able to, to see its manifest its use, right? And I think that's the symbolic importance of the dam. And notice the relationship between it and water. And then we have a dam stopping water. So I, I don't know. Is that too much? Is that getting a little too literary? I, I think Ken, the king's fully capable of a, of a symbol like that. Uh, it's associated with the water and the canals and the flow of water. And the dam is stopping the flow of water. Um, I also would say Ed, our impression of Eddie that we're given is that he's afraid. He's afraid of, and he is afraid of disease. But we get a we get an impression of him that he's like not that brave, right? He's helpless in the one one chapter we see him. Uh, he doesn't fully stand up to his wife when we first meet him in uh, six phone calls. But we actually find Eddie is is quite brave, just like Mike exploring kind of the creepy, dangerous parts of town. Uh, which there seems to be a lot of for a, for a town the size of, of of Derry. Here's the train yards, right? And of course, this is it's not like of the Great Depression. It's it's not like that anymore. But it's you still have hobos and vagrants and people floating around America in the 1950s more so than than today. I, I think I guess you still have homeless people, of course, but this connection of like the vagrant or the the, the kind of the, the drifter. It's not quite have the power. It doesn't have the power now that it that it had in the 50s, right? You, you see that character appearing in a lot of literature from that mid-century point. But that he's, he braves that for curiosity and because he gets pleasure out of seeing that. He's obviously, if his mom knew he was doing that, she would be horrified. So our impression of him is, is, is broken, uh, I think. And I... It's not just that he's he's scared. Um, now, how does he survive? Well, um, you know how Eddie Cochran just sort of ran away and was 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 eventually killed. That's kind of what Eddie Kasprek does here. He just sort of runs away. Um, well, first he tries to convince himself it's a nightmare, but that doesn't work. Um, he runs with his bike in his hands. So he's walking his bike or running with his bike along the way. And the leper saying, blow job, come back anytime, Eddie, bring your friends. Um, but here's, there's a key sentence here somewhere. If I can find it. Well, yeah, here it is. Eddie leaped onto his bike and pedaled away, not caring that his throat had closed up tight as Tilly again, not giving two sucks for his asthma, not looking back. So he survives really because he wills himself not to have an asthma attack. Um, he feels it coming, but he's able to avoid it. He wills himself not to have an asthma attack at this point. Um, and so he runs. He's able to get away on the, on the bike. And I guess that's another reminder of, 
of how how powerful belief you know belief is the ma- the magic and belief are one and the same in this book so anyways i guess that's it for these three chapters very important chapters all all carrying different weight in the narrative and all uh, crucial i think and they they give us a closer look at at these characters it's not just the tour of how did each of these people encounter it there's so much more interesting stuff going on than just the actual encounters with it even though they are powerful moments i I think they're they're not necessarily the highlights of the story the highlight of the story the really important thing here is this quartet coming together so that's it um the next episode will take us through chapters eight and nine only two of them i think yeah yeah that will be all we have time for so we won't get to the secondary interlude um but we'll just do the the Richie and Bev chapters, which will take us up to page 440 on my version of the book. Um, but yeah, two chapters, 120 pages. So some long ones coming up, but I'm looking forward to it. So um, so uh, I'll join you shortly with my thoughts about that part of the story. Uh, so let me know what you think about anything I've said. Um, you know, I've, I guess in, in, in I've read a lot about it. I've listened to a lot of podcast commentary on it. So some of that, some of that stuff. I was thinking when I was talking before, like, did I did did I get that from somewhere? I really should have. You know, I don't really have the footnotes for it because I've sort of internalized a lot of these conversations and ideas, and I have gotten some of the ideas from some other podcasts, like the the Stephen King cast and um, some reviews I've read. So if I if I did steal anyone's ideas or conclusions. Uh, that's this is my effort to acknowledge that uh, i guess but yeah that's it for now uh thanks for listening and i will see you next time going down to lonesome town where the broken heart stays going down to lonesome town to cry